Hey everyone, and welcome to Seriously Risky Business. My name's Patrick Gray. Seriously Risky Business is sponsored this week by Stairwell, which makes a platform that ingests all of the executables in your environment and lets you analyze, slice and dice them and look for gnarly, horrible things that shouldn't be there. Uh, my co-host for this podcast is Tom Muran, and he joins me now. G'day, Tom. G'day, Patrick. How are you? Good, good. And uh, yeah, for those of you who are unfamiliar, this is the podcast where we talk through Tom's newsletter. Uh, every week he writes uh, the Seriously Risky Business newsletter that goes out through Substack to what I think about 13,500 subscribers these days. So um, yeah, just keeps keeps ticking up and up and up. Uh, so let's get into it, Tom. And you've written about something that we did cover in the main weekly show, which is this new kind of alliance between youths, criminal youths in the West, like online cyber delinquents, um, an alliance between them and ransomware crews based out of Russia. And we saw this in the Caesars and MGM casino hacks. It looks like it was, you know, kids who are really sort of in the style of lapsus um, doing these attacks, but instead of just, you know, creating havoc um, and you know, just causing drama, they're now getting involved in, in full-on ransomware campaigns. Which made me think back to, and, and I've got a bit of a discussion with Dmitry Alperovich in, in this week's main show about that, but the aspect of this that I wanted to talk to you about is policy responses that aren't going to be limited to just like, you know, getting the FBI to um, to arrest them and, uh, you know, encouraging people to, to roll out better security measures. The Lapsus CSRB report uh, that looked into the activities of, of a subset of these types of uh, criminals really went hard on the idea that we need to be able to divert young people from, you know, embracing these types of crimes. You know, and I know we're not experts in, in you know, diversionary programs for wayward youths, <laughs> but that said, I do wonder how effective can an approach like that be, do you think? I think those approaches are necessary. I think they're effective, but they're extremely long-term and they're also only will deal with part of the problem. So I think that these types of people can be very damaging. And at, you know, if you can reduce the pool by, I don't know if it's 10% or 15% or 50% or 70%, that that's a win. And I think that my, my gut feeling is that the money you spend on diversion will be well spent. It will save many companies a fair bit of angst and money over time. But I also think it's not going to work tomorrow, uh, <laughs> won't work next week. It'll be something that, you know, just will take years to, and it'll be hard to measure the actual impact that it does have. Mm. Uh, I thought this part of the report was kind of a bit underdone. It was, yes, that seems like a good idea and we should do that. And I think it also But there has, were no specifics, were there? It was really just like, gee, it'd be great if we could get these kids to choose, uh, choose life. Yeah, <laughs> and I think the other part of the reason you would do that is that there's also an upside in that you get kids who are actually tremendously capable and you do get them to do things that are actually good for society. Like that's a, yeah. that's, you know, you're taking a net negative and you're turning it into a positive. So I think they're sort of worthwhile doing uh, maybe just on their own. Um, I also thought that there's some 
options to try and disrupt these groups um, if they're talking on platforms where you actually have some influence and you can perhaps try and, and get them kicked off those platforms i understand well, I mean, some a of lot them... of these a lot of these sort of ad hoc groups that are springing up to do things like caesars and mgm uh, we know thanks to a wonderful report from aj vicens over at cyberscoop uh, he was briefed on some work from threat researchers at sentinel one and it turns out there's like you know a bit of a community um where these groups spring out of called the com and i, I you know already just reading that i'm like you know probably 20 percent of the members of the com are probably FBI at this point, <laughs> you know. Yeah, so I, I, the the report, the CSRB report, didn't talk about that kind of disruption. So I think that there's mm. options there as well. Uh, it struck me a bit, reminded me a bit of um, terrorism in that you've got communities that you want to try and infiltrate and break up, and I don't think it's not as easy to motivate people. Um, when it's a group of teenagers, there's a tendency to be a bit dismissive, but I think that that kind of action can be worth doing as well. Um, yeah. But I understand you had some ideas, Patrick. Well, I mean, some thoughts, definitely. Like, I think back to the 90s when, you know, I mean, I got into this because all my friends at high school were hackers, right? <laughs> and there was, like, I went to school with a guy, you know, he would break into telecom you know, which is now Telstra. Mm. I think the, the name change was around then. He would break into telecom vans to steal equipment to do freaking, <laughs> you know, and to steal manuals and stuff. So yep. he'd happily throw a brick through a van window to steal some telco manual. I mean, that's exactly the sort of behavior that these kids are doing now, right? So one of the reports I read is that they would, you know, get access to an organization, then find their manuals and understand the manuals to do the next, the next step. Sure, but I mean, I guess with the, where I was going with that is that was considered, wow, that's pretty hardcore, Yep. right, Yep. to teenage me, which is, you know, you're going around throwing bricks through through telecom van windows to steal manuals, like that's, that's pretty crimey. And there were other people, I knew people who had stolen stuff like credit card numbers and they used them to buy dial-up internet access so that they could stay online. <laughs> yeah. That's about the extent to which, and I know other people who hacked ISPs, so that they could dump the, you know, creds from subscribers so that they could use other people's dial-up internet accounts because back then dial-up internet was the only way to get online and it was expensive. So, you know, and I knew some other people, I think eventually I discovered that they had a history of stealing large databases of email addresses and selling them off to spammers and whatnot. But, you know, when we look at this, you know, again, back then that was considered some pretty serious black hattery. But it's nothing like this stuff, right? Like, and when you look at these these kids and what they get up to, bringing physical violence into it as well, right? Threatening people if they don't do sim swaps or whatever and blackmailing people and just like really intense stuff. You know, these guys are real criminals. And I, I, I so, so, so my thought is this, let me just tie that off. My thought is, I remember what it was like coming up with a bunch of curious minds who could only get into so much trouble. And most of those people... Uh, went off and had really great careers, a lot of them in security, right? Um, <laughs> they grew these up. These days, they grew up, right? Yep. But these days, I think it's just more and more likely that as a wayward online youth, you can make some mistakes that you won't come back from. And I think that's unfortunate. I really doubt whether actually locking up these kids... Uh, when they're caught, because some of them will be, will actually make that much difference deterring other kids 
Um, because I just remember when I was a teenager, like, you know, that kind of bad stuff never happens to me. It always happens to someone yeah. else. And like, uh, I think there's not the, I guess it's the maturity of understanding that the, the, in a way you're not special <laughs> and, and you can get caught that just doesn't exist when you're a certain age. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, in terms of some positive things they might do, you know, I mean, what about CTF competitions? I mean, we're seeing these capture the flag tournaments pop up. You know, I think we could do a lot around, you know, positive reinforcement of, pe- of developing people's hacking skills. But that requires, you know, investment into developing things like what, you know, the military people call cyber ranges and stuff. You know, you've got to have realistic environments. You've got to have a real motivation to compete. And I guess the problem is, you know, one of the best ways to get better at hacking is to actually go out and do the hacking. Um, you know, so you might find that the ones who are already doing crimes actually have a bit of an edge in the CTF. So it's just, I don't know, man. I, I, I guess what I'm saying is it's complicated and I don't know how successful these diversionary programs are. And even if you do have competitions and whatnot and skills development programs, like, you know, the sort of teenager who's drawn to crime isn't drawn to legit stuff like that because they think it's dumb. Yeah, I think there's... They want to be, be living on the edge. Yeah, yeah. I think also once you get involved in an online community, it you sort of adopt the value set of that community. And I think yeah. if you're involved in the com, not that I uh, like that kind of community, <laughs> you don't go in there and boast about how well you do, did in a CTF. People would go, yeah. hey, that's lame. <laughs> yeah. And so I think there, there's... I think it, I ran somewhere at MGM and made fifteen million dollars, or Caesars was the one who paid. I mean, that's a better brag in a community like that than I got second place in a yeah, in my school's exactly. CTF. Yeah. yeah, so it's it's got to be diversionary to relatively, you know, before they get involved in that. And I think that's what is really tricky. And so I, think, I mean, I do want, I do wonder if we're going to wind up with the cyber version of when they wheel out some you know reformed drug addict to talk to the kids about the risks of heroin, you know, and and like. You've never seen so much eye rolling uh, as as when those sort of talks would happen at, at your school, you know? Like, is that where we're headed with this? <laughs> I think absolutely that's where we're headed. So the thing I've heard is that for ex-terrorists, those are actually the most powerful voices. So I don't know... But that's, that's ideological. That's different, isn't it? Um, I think it's the same thing. It's people who feel like they're undervalued and are searching for purpose in their life, right? And they go off on a particular path and then I I guess they grow up or they see where that leads them and then they realize that that was a mistake and they're sort of talking to their former selves when they were younger and saying, these are the reasons I went down this path, but here's why that was a mistake. And I think that if you've got the right person that should be powerful because it's it's you know this is me in the future telling me that what i'm thinking is a mistake now i don't know that so that's what i've heard from people in the terrorism community that those kind of voices are the most powerful ones um and so i think you know we need to at some point find people like that they probably don't exist right now i'm not sure i can think of a few like sammy kamkar's talk but although he wasn't doing crime he did accidentally crime something uh which was MySpace, <laughs> but um oh, what, you know what, i've seen him do talks what i mean by that is that there are these people who exist from um <laughs> they probably won't like me saying this from a bygone era it feels like to me that the people who are involved in lapsus and groups like that 
are just a lot more um, psychopathic. Um, no, I mean, the ones that remind, you know, the ones who I think are a bit similar are Lulsec, right? Right. And, you know, they weren't as nasty, though. I mean, a couple of them were. I can imagine you get a few of those guys um, yeah. to, to to go and speak at, at schools and whatnot. Um, you know, that, that might do something. But what's interesting, too, is that you kept talking about this as like almost like a form of radicalization. Yeah. And that's the third time that's come up for me talking about this in the last day or two, right? So when I spoke to AJ Vicens at CyberScoop, you know, he used that word. He used, oh, well, they're radicalized. And then Dimitri used that word when I recorded the uh, weekly show with him this morning. He's talking about this radicalization. I, I thought both times when they used that word, I thought, come on, that's a bit over the top. But I guess I'm starting to see that you could describe being sucked into one, into these communities as, as like, you know, it is a radicalization process, I guess, isn't it? <laughs> what I think is that radicalization is in the eye of the beholder. So, yeah. for example, I, I something... spent too much time growing up around hackers, which is maybe why I don't <laughs> see them as radicals. But anyway, well, well, and um, you know, you step back and you think you're a young person, you don't have many prospects necessarily. You want to dedicate yourself to a purpose bigger than yourself. And if you join something like the Australian Defence Force or the US Army or even the French Foreign Legion, you wouldn't describe that as radicalization, but that's essentially the same, ideally the same process. You understand where you fit, you understand you've got this goal that leads to a, a bigger purpose, you get some um, self-identity and also you understand how you contribute. That's, that's like uh, the positive form of radicalization. But you just right? described the same process as people joining Al Qaeda. Yeah, so exactly. I, <laughs> I think it is the same process, and yeah. like people are searching for the same thing. When we don't like it, we call it radicalization. <laughs> when we like it, yeah. we call it um, you know finding your purpose in life. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm, I'm I'm totally with you. I'm totally with you. And look, just the last thing I want to see is more information campaigns for parents to know if their children are hackers. Because that's something that concerns me as well, is we're going to have to cringe at the YouTube video that some American government department makes to try to combat this problem. That's uh, going to be quite disturbing. But look, let's move on to our next topic today. And you've covered a few things here. You know, you actually um, had a look at the uh, Azure leak that was the Azure Shared Access uh, Signature Leak um, that Wiz found. Uh, we spoke about that on last week's show with uh, Lena Lau and Adam Bylow. People can uh, have a listen to that and, and also read Tom's uh, analysis of it. But another thing that you covered today was the Ukrainian CERT report into Russian activity in Ukraine. You know, everyone I think found that one quite interesting, I think because of the, the fact that there has been quite a change in, in what Russia is actually getting up to in Ukraine. Why don't you walk us through that? I thought this was interesting because it just shows that they're learning. Um, so I've written quite a few times how I thought that there was this um, kitchen sink approach a lot of the time where it seems that the Russian military would decide on a target and they would throw everything against it. So when I say everything, I mean both conventional attacks and then they'd back those up with destructive cyber operations. And that always seemed to me to be a bit pointless. But it seems like they've moved away from that um, and they've moved to doing complementary things. So, for example, um, 
it says that they are focusing on Ukrainian law enforcement agencies. So that's not something you can do with conventional. Well, I mean, only if you're going to kill them does conventional weapons help you. But in this, ca- you in this case, it seems like they're looking for evidence, uh, looking to see what evidence Ukrainian authorities have on war crimes committed by Russia, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so in intelligence gathering. There's another part that talks about um, trying to use cyber operations sort of uh, either targeting or battle damage assessment where they're targeting the private sector to figure out how their conventional weapons attacks have gone. So missile and drone attacks. And it's really unclear uh, exactly how they're doing that. Um, but the, What, uh, you mean in terms of TTPs? Yeah, or? yeah, yeah. Like what, what are they actually targeting? It's very broad. It says the private sector. So is that, you know, I don't know. Oh, okay. So not TTPs, like in terms of the actual targets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, but I thought that was interesting because that kind of makes sense. You've got missiles and, and drones and they're good at blowing things up. At, and, and so you want cyber operations to kind of complement that. Uh, well, I mean, is that complementing it or is it trying to do some intelligence collection that helps you make better decisions when you're using your, your drones, you know? Yeah, well, so I, I, I think what it... I would describe that as complementing. <laughs> sort of, but it is still, you know... I mean, it's just focused intelligence, if you know what I mean, yeah. right? Like it's not like some of the fancy stuff that Five Eyes got up to in in various places when you're talking about like properly integrated kinetic and cyber actions. It's still intelligence gathering. It might be a little bit more focused and it might be intended to have some, uh, you know, to learn some some lessons that can help you improve your, you know, battlefield performance or whatever, but it is still inter- intelligence gathering. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's, that's fair enough. I Depends what you mean by complimentary. <laughs> um, uh, no, I mean, with yeah, this is the, the ongoing uh, debate, isn't it, internally and everywhere. One of the other things I thought was interesting is that there's quite a focus on media. Um, so it talks about individuals and journalists. And the goal there is to gain control, and I'm quoting here, over media resources and accounts intending to employ them for disinformation campaigns and influence operations. And I didn't really dive into it in the piece, but that struck me as something that a Western military would not necessarily think about defending against. Um, mm. So our initial inclination is that from a government perspective is you don't really want to get involved in 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 dealing with the media too much because there's this kind of separation. Yeah, if we're in a conflict, do we actively try and protect them? What do we do there? Uh, it seems like they'll be in a, a target in the kind of scenarios that seem the most realistic against somewhere like the PRC or or Russia, yes. for example. Well, I mean, the thing people have got to remember is journalists talk to everyone yeah. as well. So they're not just good targets in terms of you know influence operations and whatnot. They are excellent targets because uh, they're great people to do third-party collection off. If they're journalists who have, you know, say a national security journalist here in Australia would have, you know, geez, their chat logs. If you could monitor them re- real time with all of their, you know, all of their contacts at at various intelligence agencies and departments and in the political system as well. I mean, you know, you get their view of what's going on and you're pretty well informed, and it saves you a lot of intelligence busy work. Yeah, that's right. So I think there, to me, that was the an interesting question for Western governments to think about. Like, just yeah. you know, if if we're in that situation, what do we do to protect those people? 
And it's funny too, because every time a media organization in Australia gets attacked, they always think it's some sort of gla- grand global conspiracy <laughs> against them. Who was it? It was like Nine Network, wasn't it? I think they, they got, got ransomware, and, was it? Yeah. Yeah, and they thought it was like Vladimir Putin ordering a revenge strike because they did some like 60 Minutes Australia piece about Putin not being very <laughs> nice or something. It was quite funny. Um, Tom, let's wrap it up there. Thank you very much. Uh, for the chat. Um, you also covered uh, in this week's newsletter uh, attempts by, well, what the DHS is, is going to maybe bring in a unified reporting portal for US FedGov for cyber reporting incidents. That's actually kind of interesting. Um, and you've also linked off to some resources around uh, CIS's new HBOM, uh, you know, hardware bill of materials framework. Uh, all very interesting stuff, my friend. Great to chat to you and uh, we'll do it all again next week. Thanks, Patrick.